Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning uh, on this discussion on the Biden administration's Syria policy. We named the event as Continuity and um, Change, the Biden administration's Syria policy. And we got a bit of a taste of what that continuity might look like yesterday with the Biden administration's first military action taking place in Syria as a response to Shia um, Iranian uh, supported or pro-Iranian Shia mil uh, militants in Syria. Um, and it was a narrow attack, but uh, the US said it was a uh, response to recent attacks in Iraq. So it reminded me immediately of the idea that uh, Syria may not be important for the U.S. policy on, in its own right, but rather for the regional um, dynamics, uh, U.S.-Iran relationship and others. I'm not going to comment too much, but I just want to drop this comment in light of most recent attacks in Syria. But we would like to discuss what might be the same as the Trump administration's policy or which was also, which also had a lot of um, continuity with the uh, Obama administration. So we are gonna discuss these uh, matters uh, with three great speakers we have today. Um, we have with us ambassador, retired ambassador, US ambassador, Robert Ford. Um, he's currently a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Um, he retired from the U.S. Foreign Service in 2014 after serving as the U.S. Ambassador to Syria. We also have um, uh, Dima Musa. She is the Vice President of the Syrian National Coalition and a founding member of the Syrian uh, Women's po Political Movement. Uh, she's, she's also a founding member of the Syrian National Council, a Syrian opposition coalition formed during the uprising in 2011. She served previously as a spokesperson for the Revolutionary Council of Homs. She's joining us today from Istanbul, where, he, where she is based. And then we, we have Wael Al-Zayat. Um, he is the CEO of Engage Foundation, a national civic education and engagement grassroots organization for Muslim Americans. He's with he's a senior fellow with the Middle East Institute. Um, he previously served uh, as a, a U.S. Middle East policy expert at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, he was a senior policy advisor to U.S. Ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power. And he was also a Syria outreach coordinator with Ambassador Ford, who is joining us today, and special assistant to US Ambassador to Iraq, James Jeffrey, as well. Uh, they all have longer resumes, but I'm not going to read everything about them uh, for the sake of time. And we would like to move to discussion. Today, we will proceed with uh, first Ambassador Ford. Uh, and then we will go to Dima Musa and then Wael Al-Zayat for their comments. I just want to give them opening um, uh, five minutes for their five to ten minutes for their opening comments. And then we'll do a second round 
and I'll, I'll have some questions and then we'll open up to uh, questions and comments from the audience. Um, so Ambassador Ford, uh, please, the floor is yours. Tell us how you see the Biden administration's Syria policy going forward, uh, especially in light of what happened yesterday, uh, what we can expect. Thank you. Thank you, Kadir. Um, and it's nice to be with you. And hello to Dima and Well, It's nice to be with you also. Um, I'm just going to speak for maybe three or four minutes. Um, with respect to the Biden administration's policy on Syria, I think there will be more continuity with the Trump administration than there will be change. Why do I think that? Uh, number one, the Trump administration increased sanctions on the uh, Assad government in Damascus. I do not think that the Biden administration will reduce those sanctions. I do not think they will uh, take them off. Uh, the Caesar sanctions, for example, uh, have broad political support in the Congress, both Democrats and Republicans. I see no sign uh, that Biden administration wants to reduce them in any way. Um, I would note that uh, the UN's uh, Mark Locott, their uh, chief for humanitarian assistance issues, indirectly criticized American sanctions um, with the United Nations recently, but I see no sense that the Biden administration is going to withdraw them. So continuity there with the Trump administration. Number two, military presence. Uh, again, I don't see any sign that the Biden administration wants to uh, reduce or re withdraw the American forces uh, that are located east of the Euphrates River. If anything, they may have slightly increased the number of troops. I've seen uh, media reports that there are 900 US soldiers on the ground now in Eastern Syria. Uh, there are media reports of the Americans building a sort of airstrip um, in the very far northeast corner of Syria near Dedek. And uh, there are other airstrips that the American uh, Special Operations Forces have built in the uh, eastern part of Syria, east of the river. I think the Biden administration is likely to keep them there for two reasons. Number one, there is still a hope that those soldiers, their military presence, uh, represent some kind of leverage uh, against the government in Damascus that will leverage uh, political reforms of some kind uh, from the Assad government. Uh, the second argument that I hear people make, and I think has a certain kind of uh, resonance with the Biden administration, is that withdrawing the American soldiers would somehow hurt American credibility with partners in the region and perhaps partners more globally. Uh, and so rather than suffer a hit to credibility, they prefer to leave the soldiers on the, on the ground in Syria. Um, the one area where I can imagine there may be some change in the Biden administration is with respect to the treatment of Syrian refugees. Of course, the Trump administration did not like refugee admissions as a general principle. And they were further reluctant, um, especially uh, to grant visas, refugee status to people from 
countries that had already been afflicted with terrorism, such as Syria. Um, and so Syria refugee admissions plummeted during the Trump administration. I believe there were basically no admissions during calendar year 2019, calendar year 2020. The Obama administration had not allowed in a gigantic number of Syrian refugees. I think the most was in uh, calendar year 2016 when they allowed in about 16,000. And I think the total number of Syrian refugees in the United States does not pass 60,000, maybe 65,000. It could be the Dima or whale would have a better uh, precise number. But I can imagine that the Biden administration as part of its general approach to reestablishing a refugee admission program would include Syrian refugees in that broader refugee policy. And so finally, we should begin to see uh, some Syrian refugees admitted to the United States. I think personally, the more the better, um, but that's my personal opinion. I'm gonna offer one last comment and then I'm gonna be quiet. Um, with respect to the airstrikes, uh, which occurred last night our time, I think it's a reminder that the Syrian conflict and the problems in Iraq and the conflicts in Iraq are linked. And they have been linked really since 2012 and 2013 when the Iranians were using Iraqi airspace to fly in supplies and equipment for the Assad government. This dates back to the time of Nouri Maliki when he was prime minister of Iraq. That hasn't changed except that now there are a number of Iraqi militiamen deployed in and around uh, Western Syria and now Eastern Syria as well, around Abu Kamal. Um, and so I think those who sort of want to try to separate the two and, and look at them analytically as separate things, maybe are missing a point. I'm gonna stop there, Kadir. Let me unmute myself. That was a um, short um, set of comments, but I think we're gonna have to open them up uh, quite a bit because that all of them tells me a lot actually. <laughs> Uh, thank you for being so precise and uh, short to the point. Uh, Dima, uh, let's go to you. Uh, what are the expectations on the ground? What are the expectations from the Syrian opposition about the US role? Um, and what? how do you expect, uh, again, the same theme, changes and continuities uh, with the Biden administration? Uh, first of all, thank you, Qadir, and uh, I want to say hello to uh, my uh, co-panelist, um, Wael, and uh, Ambassador Ford. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into a pol political analysis, um, you know, so because I'm uh, a politician, so I'm going to talk more about our perception of what is going on and, uh, you know, our position from what's going on with the Biden administration, which... Uh, until now, there are indications that it has a uh, specific Syria policy. Uh, as you know, a lot of the uh, positions, the main position, positions with regards to Syria have not been filled yet. Um, and, uh, you know, we still have uh, in, play in, um, uh, in the position that uh, previously Ambassador Jeffrey and uh, Joel Rayburn filled, you know, we have somebody who's um, sort of uh, interim and you know this is not a permanent position we don't know yet where uh, the Syria file is going to be 
and uh, you know whether it's going to get its own um, envoy like the previous administration or it's going to go back to the way it was during the Obama administration where it was just somebody who's an official responsible for for the file so this is concerning for us um, uh, you know until now we have gotten reassurances that there's no change in policy uh, with regards to Syria but that also means that it hasn't been thought out or looked at and um, it probably has also fallen on the priority list for U.S. Um, foreign policy. It hasn't even been mentioned in any of the statements made, whether by the president, uh, by President Biden, or even um, the uh, the Department of State. Um, and especially with the, with the contacts the Department of State has had, um, the Secretary of State has had with some of the regional um, uh, countries which usually are concerned with Syria, we noticed that there's complete absence of talk about Syria when statements came out about um, these calls. Um, you know, there are, this is the way we see it that the Biden administration has probably now the, the main priorities are focusing on the inside the COVID, um, the pandemic issue inside the United States and also the economy. And some of the problems that it has inherited from the Trump administration with regards to its international presence and its international image. Um, but we do think uh, it is a mistake to sort of isolate uh, regional and country level files from this uh, attempt to reconstruct its um, uh, international presence in, uh, uh, you know, whether through rejoining organizations or, you know, sort of uh, uh repairing some of the damage with uh the european uh, union or some of the the states in 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 europe um so we would like to see uh first of all uh, a clear policy on what the biden administration um is is going to do with regards to syria and that will enable us to better also um have these communications and uh you know uh, how to proceed with the biden administration um, and it, it is really unfortunate, I want to address the airstrikes, that the first thing that the Biden administration has done with anything uh, uh, relating to Syria was military action before it even stated anything with regards to its policy there. Uh, I'm going to stop here and I'm sure we'll have uh, more opportunity when you know we have uh, questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dima. Uh, please, while go ahead. Uh, great to be with you guys. Good morning for those of you who are, you know, on this time zone. Nice to see some uh, familiar names among the participants. Uh, no, I, I think uh, I, I basically, you know, I agree with, with the remarks by uh, my two good friends. Um, you know, if we were to think about the likely policy of the Biden administration, and of course, it's always dangerous to make predictions. And as we know, despite the best plans, uh, sometimes events on the ground dictate responses that were not planned. And all too often in foreign policy, you end up being reactionary to just triage the situation before you. And in a political you know, campaign environment, before you know it, the administration is running for office again uh, and focused on that. So um, I think some of the telling uh, signs are reflective of the people in the positions. Uh, you know, we have, uh, at the end of the day, foreign policy is a reflection of the people who implement them. And, uh, you know, we have uh, my old colleague, Brett McGurk now is a coordinator for the Middle East. He has the most senior position related to the region. 
until uh, an assistant secretary of state is named, for example, there is no uh, permanent Syria envoy. And I would look at, uh, uh, for example, uh, Brett's foreign affairs uh, article, uh, Syria Hard Truths, I believe it was April 2019, where he really lays out what he thinks are the realistic options remaining for the administration. And his premise is really that the importance to uh, be realistic about where we are in Syria, the limited options that we have, particularly following Trump's uh, uh, decrease at the end of our foot military footprint in, in Syria. And his recommendation and his view at the time, it may have changed, but I don't think it has, is that the United States needs to make the most of what it has, which is this limited footprint, about 500 troops, to continue to work with the SDF on CT, preventing ideally the return of ISIS, and perhaps supporting efforts to reintegrate the SDF militias back into the Syrian National Army uh, to, uh, in exchange for some sort of decentralization agreement with the Assad regime. Um, so that is a um, possibility that, that is out there, uh, that that would be something that this administration would pursue. Now, this would obviously uh, have to be updated given what has happened since, uh, which is, um, the Turkish military offensive in Idlib, the resurgence of ISIS and the questions of whether is it realistic to even try to do that with 500 troops? Can you actually do it? Would that require an increase in US deployments or acknowledgement that this is simply not possible and we have to leave rather than you know keep a few troops that are incapable of carrying out the mission? And then also changing dynamics with Iran since even 2019. Uh, as you saw, this attack really indicates uh, an acknowledgement that uh, the path toward a return to the JCPOA is not going to be as clear cut as folks had hoped or assumed it would be. And it is, it, I have to say, it's a little puzzling that the Iranian government would conduct these attacks right after the administration uh, took office against our base in Erbil. I guess an administration that has publicly said they want to return to the agreement. And I know there's rationalizations regarding why they would do it and the whole fight between the reformists and the hardliners in Iran and uh, internal politics that are particular to Iraq and to Iran. I just find it to be uh, puzzling and, 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 and a mistake on their part because it really forced the hand of the Biden administration. They had to respond. And so that's a complicating factor of just hoping that we retain a small footprint, keeps an eye on ISIS, and maybe nudge the SDF to a deal with Assad. Now, I'm putting aside my personal views about this whole effort and any moral implications of this. You know, I'm describing to you what I think are likely moves of this administration. And as, as somebody who worked in government, there's gonna be a long, protracted Syria review process. I know Robert knows what I'm talking about. They're gonna spend a lot of time and there was a lot of ink spilled on thinking about what should be our posture. And they should do it, but I feel bad for the civil servants uh, in the building who have gone through this now too many times in their careers. 
Uh, and where they were led is probably somewhere connected to what I said. Um, maybe a little bit more pressure on the Iranians in Syria, maybe more or less support for the SDF, maybe a few more troops, or I don't see them withdrawing them, and maybe like actively supporting them to talk with the Assad regime or just let them deal with it on their own. Um, the big question will be what the posture will be with Turkey in places like Idlib. There are those who are pushing for more engagement with Turkey on Idlib and including actually engaging with HTS and reforming it. Um, there'll be others who will just not want anything to do with the Idlib province and let the Turks deal with it on their own. I'm not sure where that will land, but again, going to the people that are in, 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 in office, uh, including President Biden, uh, it's no surprise that they don't hold particularly very close feelings about uh, the current leadership in Ankara. And there are, there's a lot of, I think, uh, um, um, you know, for lack of better words, bad blood between the United States and Turkey in terms of the la last few years in Syria of how things went down. And, and, and as somebody who's worked on this issue, you know, there's always blame, enough blame to go around and, 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 and legitimate views uh, that are held by both parties. And it's my hope, actually, as NATO allies, that they are able to overcome that for the sake of the alliance, as well as the Syrian people who are dependent on these two countries figuring it out. Because the victims of Turkish-US disagreement are Syrians, in my opinion. Uh, they will be the biggest ones who will suffer. Um, so that's, I think I've said plenty, uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes, thank you, Wild. Uh, so I want to go back to um, uh, Ambassador Ford. Uh, you, um, several of you mentioned uh, um, whether an amoy would be appointed anytime soon. I've seen the name Jeffrey Feltman in, in, Feltman in one of the uh, pieces on Syria. Um, but uh, you're free to comment on what could happen if that were the case, if somebody like that was appointed. Uh, but I want to talk to um, Ambassador Ford about this last thing while talked about Turkey. Um, you've suggested in one of your rather provocative, uh, let's say, pieces lately that, you know, the U.S. simply, not simply, but should basically pull out and leave the ISIS fight to Turkey and Russia. Can you explain that perspective for our viewers? I think you're still on mute though. Sure, happy to talk about it. It's, as you said, it's not a point of view which is widely shared yet, um, but I think people will come around to it. And as soon as we take serious American casualties in Eastern Syria, they're gonna come around to it a lot faster. I would prefer they do it before we take those casualties, but the Americans, I think, don't have an abiding national security interest in who governs uh, Eastern Syria. Uh, what we do have an abiding national interest in is that uh, terrorist groups not use that area, use Syria more generally as a, a launching pad to launch attacks against the United States or uh, our allies, such as in Western Europe. So um, very briefly, um, the Russians 
are already largely in control, along with the Assad government and the Iranians, of the area to the west of the Euphrates River. Is it perfect control? No, it is not. Uh, ISIS is still operating there and in some cases has increased its uh, attacks, but it doesn't hold territory. Uh, and were the Russians to put in more forces, I think they sh should be able to extend their control into Eastern Syria. Don't know that it matters if it's US forces east of the Euphrates or if it's Russian forces east of the Euphrates in terms of American national security interests. Of course, the Russians will have to put in more forces. That, that goes without saying. But as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. It doesn't cost the US government budget any money for the Russians to go into Eastern uh, Syria. Um, thinking longer term, the United States has a small military contingent in a place where it has really no friends. Uh, the Turks are hostile to the American sponsorship of the Syrian Kurdish PYD faction and its militia, the YPG. That Turkish hostility is not going to end in the foreseeable future. The Iranians are hostile towards it. The Syrian government is hostile towards it. The Russian government is hostile towards it. And frankly, the Iraqi government is not entirely comfortable either. Um, even the Iraqi Kurdistan region government does not have particularly good relations with the Syrian Kurdish faction controlling the autonomous administration. So I, I'm always uncomfortable when the United States is in a position where it's exposed out on a limb without friends in the vicinity. Um, I would be much more comfortable if the Russians were to take that area and simply continue their military uh, operations east of the river and so the Americans don't have to. Uh, I, I say this with the understanding that I don't think the Biden administration wants to do that and a number of its officials, uh, both at the Pentagon and those uh, slated to go to the State Department, um, have expressed opinions about the success of the by, with, and through uh, mode of operation with the Syrian Democratic Forces. And unquestionably, there have been some real successes with the by, with, and through. But I sort of wonder at what point do you declare victory and return home? And if the answer is, well, ISIS is still a problem today, then my question is, when does it stop being a problem? And is are the tactics we're applying such as using the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, is that really the long-term answer? I would suggest it's probably not. Um, but in any case, the American national security interest is that they not be able to use Syria as a jumping off point. The, that's where the Turkish role comes in. The Turkish-Syrian border is an American national security interest. And I'm gonna be very frank here. I hope you don't mind, Kadir Bey, but the Turks no, no have played a very dirty game over the years um, by looking the other way, and in some cases facilitating the movement of extremists back and forth across that border. Now I understand uh, that they wanted to overthrow the Assad government and they wanted good fighters. I, on a certain level, I understand it. Um, but as I myself warned Turkish officials as early as 2013, uh, it was a dangerous game and terrorist attacks in places like the Istanbul airport show that. 
Um, I think now in 2021, um, it's time for the Americans and the Turks to have a serious conversation about that border and about stopping the uh, flow of militants back and forth um, and doing that in a verifiable way that the Americans are comfortable with. And in return for that, we don't really need to be in Eastern Syria. We can turn it over to the Russians to contain an enduring ISIS presence. Um, but that requires Turkish cooperation to shut down that border to the movement of militants. And so far, I do not think Turkey has been very reliable on that. I would rather see Americans negotiating with Turkey about that uh, than uh, arguing with the Turks about something like Efrain or Russell Ayn or uh, Tel Abiyad or something. I think the American national security is we don't want militants moving across that border into Turkey and then going beyond Turkey. And frankly, Turkey has an interest in that too. I mentioned the Istanbul airport attack, but there've been other extremist attacks, ISIS attacks, including in Ankara uh, on the part of ISIS. So the two governments should be able to work on that. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, two, two things you said, um, I have just quick questions on those and then I wanna move to other panelists. One is, you know, if, Russia, if, if you hand it over to Russia in the area you described in the US, there will be a lot of arguments about, you know, basically you're leaving it to the Russians and the Iranians on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then by with through uh, what successful argument has been kind of um, made strongly, there are many people believing that, but that came at the cost of the all this conflict with Turkey. And it can even at some point there were potential talk about potential clashes between US forces and Turkish forces on the ground in Northern Syria. So that cost, uh, do you think was, uh, I'm coming from the perspective of, you know, US has worked with the SDF, uh, it calls it for, for Turks, it's YPG, PKK, the same thing kind of uh, argument. Uh, but, you know, Biden administration has promised to work with allies, right? So. Uh, like Wild talked about it, Turkey is a NATO ally. So like that, can you reflect on the cost of that engagement for the for the US or for, for the US-Turkey relationship and the, for NATO? Um, sorry, two questions, but a bit expanded two questions, I guess. Um, I'd like to go back to the first question. First one is, first. You, you, would you, you're basically abandoning the ground to Russia and oh, Iran, yeah. that would be Got criticism, it. right? So, so the, the answer to that is really simple. Um, Syria, dating back to the 1960s, that's to say 60 years, has been much closer to Moscow than it ever was to Washington. For people to say that were the Americans to withdraw 500 or 900 soldiers, the Russians take over Syria, excuse me, the Russians have had military assistance missions in Syria for 60 years. They have had a very close relationship with the Damascus government politically, economically, uh, certainly in security. I mean, the, the KGB and then the uh, successor intelligence service of the Russians has been in close cooperation with Damascus for decades. Uh, it's ridiculous 
to say that were the Americans to withdraw, the Russians suddenly are predominant in Syria. They always have been predominant in Syria. With respect to Iran, it's a similar argument. Uh, the Iranians and uh, Bashar al-Assad go back now almost 20 years. The father, Hafez, kept the Iranians at a certain distance, even if he had a political alignment with them against Saddam Hussein. But the son, Bashar, changed that and seemed to be enthralled by Lebanese, Hezbollah, and the Iranians. And by the time we had the American embassy there, when I was there in 2011, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards were well ensconced in Damascus. As I said in my article, some of our embassy officers discovered they were living in a building with IRGC people. Uh, we weren't wild about that. So, I mean, they've always been there and they're going to stay there. Um, the only thing I could say about it is what's changed maybe is that there are more militia men and most importantly, the Iranians are trying to move missiles in that would threaten Israel. Missiles like this already threaten Israel from Lebanon. So it's not like the Israelis have never had a missile threat. But obviously they are concerned enough about the Iranian movement of these missiles that they, the Israelis, are taking action. And you know what? That makes sense to me. They are directly threatened. And so they are directly responding. But those missiles threaten Israel. They do not threaten the American homeland. And so while we can collaborate with the Israelis, I would say the Americans have spent decades building up Israel to be the preeminent military force in the Middle East. We succeeded. And so now the Israelis are doing with their capabilities what they need to do, what they perceive they need to do. Doesn't require American soldiers in Eastern Syria. American soldiers patrolling around Kamishli or around Hasekeh or El Busera is not doing anything to impede the movement of Iranian missiles from uh, Iraq, uh, from Iran. So, I mean, we just need to be realistic about this whole Russia-Iran influence. Um, with respect to the costs of working with the Syrian Kurdish PYD party and its YPG militia, yes. Um, it absolutely has weighed heavily on the Turkish-American bilateral relationship. I think the Americans have always looked at it as a sort of a short-term security issue for Turkey. Can't we demobilize uh, part of the border, a border strip three miles wide or five miles wide or six miles? I, Kadir, you're Turkish, I'm not. But it seems to me that Ankara's concern is not border security from the YPG. It's territorial integrity of Turkey and the appeal within Turkish Kurdish communities, especially down along that border, the, the appeal that the Syrian Kurdish political dynamics have to Turkish Kurds. There is a long-standing relationship between communities on the Turkish side of the border and on the Syrian side of the border. In the Ottoman Empire, there was no border. And those communities are linked culturally, with family ties, tribal ties, linguistically. And so when, for example, ISIS was attacking Kobani and Ankara was hesitant to provide assistance, you saw Kurdish communities inside Turkey on the Turkish side of the border erupt in demonstrations. I think the Turks are very, Ankara is very concerned about the political dynamics in the autonomous zone 
and what they portend for Kurdish communities on the Turkish side of the border. And I don't think the Americans have ever really understood that. They keep trying to put it down to a sort of an immediate security issue. There are some immediate security issues. There have been Turkish allegations of people infiltrating into Turkey to carry out armed attacks. But I think deeper down, it's a concern about what does an autonomous area run by the PYD mean for Turkish territorial integrity? Thank you, Ambassador. Um, there's, of course, I don't want to turn this into a back and forth with you uh, on this. Uh, uh, so I'm probably going to come back because there's already some questions about this, um, your, your proposal. So I want to move to Dima. Uh, Dima, um, based on uh, what Ambassador has said, let's say, let's take that scenario. The U.S. decides that, you know, they will pull out, uh, let's say, about a thousand special forces on the ground. We don't know the exact number, but uh, and essentially leaves it to Russia and and uh, Turkey on the ground to deal with ISIS. Would that be something that the Syrian opposition um, welcome or how would that um, look for, for the opposition? Um, well, before I talk about what, you know, how, whether that would be welcome or not, um, I personally, um, uh, don't think that the U.S. is going to withdraw because it has made a huge investment in, in this area, in Syria, with regards to, to fighting ISIS and, you know, sort of uh, keeping an eye on or keeping the Iranian militias in check in that region. And, um, you know, if we look historically, I don't think the U.S. has uh, pulled out of anywhere that it has intervened in militarily or had military presence um, you know, over a few years. So, um, and there are very close examples to what I'm talking about. There's Iraq right next door, there's Afghanistan. So, you know, I don't think this is something that we're going to see happen anytime soon. Um, and in terms of what it can do and with regards to, you know, how we, we look at it at the US military presence in, in Syria, um, you know, I wanna go back to, to the point that uh, or re-emphasize that the, the solution in Syria, it's not a military solution, it's a political solution, which we all know, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Constitutional Committee and everybody I think has heard about what happened in the last round of the Constitutional Committee. This, the political process is again at a standstill. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it hit another wall as we had seen previously with the Geneva process. And I think that's a reflection of the international communities inactivity in this regard. Um, and I'm particularly here going to point to the small group and you know the, the Western um, uh, group, the US and, and the EU. Um, and we won't see the political process proceeding until the military issue is completely resolved and all military activity is, is completely stopped. Um, but I don't think the U.S. pulling out of Syria is indicative of that military, uh, uh, of the military um, issues being resolved. Um, you know, if because you still have some of the um, front line, some of now now frozen sort of front lines, but you know everybody's keeping everybody in check. There are practically five uh, armies in in Syria. And one of them pulling out is not going to, to solve the problem. 
um, the only signal that will send, um, I think whether it's correct or not, is that Syrian people are going to get this sense that the US is turning its back on the Syrian people and it's giving up on Syria. Um, and I think in terms of on the political level, um, it means that also that the US is not interested in, in uh, doing its part with regards to the, to the political solution. This is even politically, um, no one player is going to be able to push for a solution in Syria. It requires efforts from everybody, including the US, especially the US, which has been completely absent over the last few years. And the biggest indication of that is the Astana track. Um, and this, you know, the, uh, this continuously growing relationship that now has become sort of like a strategic relationship between Turkey and Russia. So until and unless the U.S. Um, sort of decides to step back into the process, um, you know, this is only going to prolong the uh, what's going on in Syria, the, the de facto fragmentation of the country is going to make things a lot harder. Uh, later on, once we reach that point of actually engaging in a true political process. But all in all, I don't think the US is actually going to, to militarily step out, to, out of Syria and just hand over um, you know, to Russia and Iran, uh, because uh, even for countering terrorism, I think everybody's efforts are needed. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but, but these are some yes. of the thoughts I had with regards to that. Yes, you did, Dima. What I'm hearing from you is basically you, you, Russia, U.S., others, Europeans, Turkey, uh, and potentially Iran, somehow has they have to be part of the solution. Is that where you're? They have to uh, sort of marshal resources, diplomatic resources, to arrive at a political solution by, you know, bringing Assad to the table, addressing ISIS concern all those issues and bringing up obviously opposition to the table as well uh, have Assad sort of give up on the idea that somehow he needs to retake Idlib he needs to so do you expect or do you think that that would how a solution would look like or or am I misunderstanding you you're not misunderstanding me. Whether we like it or not, everybody now has, um, you know, has contributed to to the Syria file or the Syria crisis, the Syria conflict, whatever you want to call it. And you know, everybody has uh, has taken this. So, um, uh, and everybody is, in one way or another, is part of the this the problem. So, you know, anybody who's part of the problem has to be part of the solution. Pulling out is not going to to resolve the issues, and you know what the U.S. has done in Syria. It can't just uh, you know sort of walk away from that and expect somebody else to come and fix it. So you know if you're part of the problem, you have to be part of the solution. Um, I think as Syrians, we're actually we're ready to sit at the table together. Now you know when I look at the experience from you know I know there's a lot of criticisms of the constitutional committee and the political process, um, but at least part of the Syrians have proven that they're ready to, to engage in a serious political process. You have another half that they, they're coming to the table, but they don't have the ability to make a decision. They're still waiting for orders from Damascus, which is still working on 
th this ability. It has this margin to obstruct the process, to slow it down, to stop it. And that's related to the way, you know, that on the international level, there is no consensus. There is no agreement on how to proceed with regards to Syria. Um, so, you know, until and unless that happens, and that does require everybody, uh, those we like and those we don't like. Thank you, Dima. I want to turn to while, uh, of course, while feel free to comment anything you heard, but, you know, on a, in a piece you wrote, co-authored with uh, Ambassador Ford, you guys mentioned, you know, humanitarian aid at this point is the, is the top priority or should be top priority, especially Russia blocking it from entering uh, Syria. Um, can you expand on that? If that's the top priority, does that relegate the political solution to a lower priority in the in the list of priorities? Uh, or yeah. again, am I misunderstanding that? The, the humanitarian priority is the immediate priority, but but I, you know I like to, to take a, a few steps back. Um, you know we're discussing likely. Biden administration policies on Syria. And you, you, we saw some public officials talk about how the Middle East is not in the top three uh, for the United States. Uh, you know, if I had a penny for every time I've heard this. Um, and also, you know, you hear that not only is the Middle East not in the top three, but Syria is not in the top three of the Middle East and all that stuff. It all depends how you are defining the national interest. It's how you define the national interest and um, what you think is the actual purpose of the United States being engaged diplomatically and even militarily. A lot of people focus on 500 US troops not being able to confront all these Shia militias and the Russian army and the Syria. Of course, they're not there, hopefully, to engage in war with any of these actors. They are both a deterrence as well as a leverage for other stuff. And discussions about symmetric comparisons is missing the entire point. And I actually think some people who are, who are deploying our troops out there are either not understanding this or they are faking not understanding it. The United States holds almost a third of territorial Syria today with 500 troops. How is this possible? That's the question. How is this possible? It's possible because people understand that behind those 500 troops is a superpower with warships in the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and cruise missiles and stealth bombers and a whole lot of other stuff that comes behind it if you do anything to those troops. This is how the United States decimated Russian citizens who encroached on our bases in the North a few years ago. The Wagner Group, those are Russians. They're Russians. We killed Russians, hundreds of them, annihilated them. And it didn't start World War III. You know why? because the Russians don't wanna enter into World War III with the United States and neither do we. And we establish certain rules of the game. Same thing. 
when we target Hezbollah fighters, Iraqi militias supported by Iran, and we kill Iranian military personnel in Syria, that established certain uh, parameters for the rules of the game. So our troops are there to project power. That's the real purpose. Now, can you translate that projection of power into political gains? That's an open question. But in your projection of power, you are actually achieving other immediate objectives. One of them is civilian protection. In the areas where the United States is operating or projecting power, the civilians don't have to endure barrel bombs. They don't have to endure arbitrary arrest by the Syrian regime. They don't have to be bombed by the Russian Air Force. So a third of territorial Syria is safe from those actors. Is it safe from everyone? No, it is not. There are criminal activities. There are abuses by the SDF. There are ISIS attacks. But I would think if you ask those people living in those areas, is it better to be there or other areas that are not protected by the United States uh, projection of power? They would say, no, we want to stay where we are. Similarly, in Idlib province, people living in Idlib right now under Turkish protection, do they prefer to put up with all the horrible things in Idlib or go somewhere else, including regime-held areas? Well, they're telling you what they prefer. They prefer to stay where they are as horrible as their situation is. So the question is, can you turn this relatively small investment of US projection of power? Now I'm not, look, every dollar matters and every life matters, but for 500 troops and a few million dollars, whatever the amount is these days, tens of millions. And I, again, we have economic needs here in the United States, it's COVID. A third of the country is unemployed. I'm not belittling this, but when it comes to a foreign policy and military involvement, this is pretty damn cheap. This is one of the cheapest engagements we have if you compare it to anything else we're doing. We have 30,000 troops sitting in South Korea right now. Nobody talks about them. And we have troops in, 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 in Germany that everybody was upset that Trump wanted to pull out, still there, 60 years after World War II. So for a relative cheap engagement, we have a third of this country and civilians who are protected. And we have a NATO ally in another part of the country as problematic as the relationship is and as imperfect the situation in Idlib is, including HTS and other terrorists or extremist groups. We have 3 million people there. They're not getting killed every day. Can you turn this now into a more permanent, safe area for those people? Not because you're going to force the regime to agree to leave power. It's a misreading of the intent. It is about protection today. Can you turn this zone into a more permanent, safe space for those people? That's the question. So does that mean 200 more troops may help or 500 more troops? $200 million in capacity building, working with the Turks and the international community to really ramp up and surge assistance to those people in there. So you are doing good now, and then here's the, big, here's the big, big play. Can you turn this reality on the ground over time? I don't think the conflict is ripe for an agreement right now. But once you do this, can you turn it and leverage it over time 
into a more permanent political agreement. I think a lot of people get wrapped around the axle of saying, well, these sanctions and these troops are not giving us, are not going to convince Assad to let go. Well, of course, it's not going to, but that shouldn't be the purpose of it. The objective is civilian protection in a third or now 40% of Syria, and then waiting, waiting for the regime, for the Russians and the Iranians to come to us. I don't know what we have to keep going to them. They need to come to us and say, you know what? It's been 10 years. It's been 15 years. It's been 20 years. Maybe we need a better way. They may never come to us, by the way. They may never come to us. And I would pose that it's better for us to secure what we have and the lives of the people under US and Turkish uh, spheres of influence today. And I don't know how the Turkish body politics uh, will, will take what I'm about to say. I remember when Turkey was horrified that there was gonna be a KRG in Iraq, horrified. Your parliament blocked the entry of US forces from Northern, uh, into Northern Iraq in 2003. Your president and your government refused to meet with any representatives of the Kurdistan regional government if they did not also wear the GOI hat. I remember this, I was in Baghdad. And today, some would say that the Turkish government has pretty good relations with Erbil. How did this happen? A lot of people in the West will say Turks and Kurds, they always hate it. Of course not. It's about interests and trust. It's not about nationality or religion or sect or ethnic identity. Those things matter, but interests will trump that. Can the United States and Turkey align the interests of the Syrians in Northern Syria over time with Turkey? Is there even a state of operation that's as perfect as it is that will allow them to coexist and have more trust? What changes does the SDF need to make so Turkey is no longer worried to the possibilities that Ambassador Ford correctly pointed out to? And what things Turkey needs to do to provide assurances that's not going to repeat some of the activities and quite frankly, that led to ethnic cleansing in Northern Syria. And what does the United States need to do to provide assurances to both? I would rather to cut a deal between the SDF and Turkey than to figure something out with Russia and Iran. I, if, if we can't figure this out with the partners we're supporting and our allies, how are we gonna figure it out with Russia and with Iran? And so in quick summary, we have a cheap, a relatively cheap investment in Syria we have a historical precedent in northern Iraq that I think is worth trying to replicate in northern Syria, number one, for civilian protection and to leverage it in the long term for possible political gains that may or may not come. But I would put up with that if I can secure the lives of about 7 million people today that happen to be under Turkish and U.S. protection. Thank you, Wael. Again, uh, I'm going to restrain myself from having a panel between you and me on this, but I just want to say, you know, the, the PYD, PKK thing is very different than KRG in terms of, you know, 40 know. years of, uh, it's, a, it's a long, we, we have to do a panel, basically. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no more panel. <laughs> but, um, so I, let me let me just uh, 
move to the questions, if you don't mind. I think Ambassador Ford, some things have been raised about the proposal. If you wanna respond, please go ahead. And then I'll, I wanna go to the questions. Just two points. Number one, I think it's important for the United States not to deploy its military in a haphazard way without a clearly defined mission, without an ability to set benchmarks for the success of the mission, and without some sense of the conditions of success which enable us to then withdraw the troops. Um, if we send our military into missions that are ill-defined and later marked by mission creep, and I think in Syria we have exactly that, mission creep, um, we risk over time when other situations arise around the world, and they will, um, where we find that we're scattered in a variety of military missions and it impedes achievement of broader and bigger national security interests. Um, Colin Powell was my very favorite American Secretary of State and did not distinguish himself in 2003 in the beginning of the Iraq War. I will be the first person to concede. But in general, he was very reluctant to send US forces into ill-defined missions. That's very much where I am. And I will be very frank with the audience. I was not in favor of sending American troops to Syria when it came up in uh, 2012 and again in 2013. Uh, the Iraq war convinced me and a lot of my colleagues that it would be a mistake to get involved in a, a military operation of indeterminate length in Syria. Um, I still believe that and I'm very happy we've suffered no casualties. I'm very happy. We've had a few but less than 10. I'm not at all sure that that's going to remain the case for 10 or 20 or 30 years until finally Moscow and uh, Damascus agree to come and approach the United States. I think it's incumbent on those who do want an indefinite and rather ill-defined American mission uh, to at least be upfront about it. Um, Whale was, um, but I don't hear many other people uh, saying that. And I've noticed Qadir in all of this discussion about the US military presence in Eastern Syria, we're not even talking about ISIS. Um, ISIS is, for the most part, largely contained so far. Um, will it stay contained? I think would be a great subject to discuss as the panel continues and why would it or why would it not remain contained? But right now it is. So um, then one other comment, um, and Whale alluded to this, but I wanna drive the point home. Um, I don't live in Washington. I live outside of Washington. And the needs of the country are quite great. Um, they're bigger now than they were 10 years ago, uh, pandemic being a case in point. Um, the operation in Syria is costing us in the neighborhood of $2 billion a year, two B with a billion with a B uh, dollars a year. Um, could we use the money better in better ways? I think many people would say yes. Um, there's a whole wing of the Democratic Party that would say yes. I, I, uh, I would agree with them on that. So we get then to the point that Dima raised. And I actually, I want to address it very directly. Um, 
I have a sense that like many people, uh, Syrians are waiting for the Americans to fix the Syria problem. But I don't think America can fix the Syria problem. I think that's been amply demonstrated over the last 10 years. Um, I don't think Russia can fix the Syria problem. I don't think Turkey can fix it. Not sure who can fix it, um, but certainly the Americans cannot fix it. Even if tomorrow the Americans bombed Damascus and Bashar al-Assad fell, who's going to replace him? And would that end the conflict? Probably not. So that's just analysis. So I think it's important when we talk about the Biden administration in Syria to also remind ourselves that in the end, this started 10 years ago as a conflict between Syrians. And it's going to end when there is an agreement between Syrians to which external powers will, will say, yes, this seems reasonable. But we need that Syrian element. So I'm still wondering myself, where is a Syrian vision that has broad agreement among Syrians? Where is a Syrian national plan that appeals to a broad set of communities across Syria and would also earn international support? If there was to be an initiative anywhere, I would not look to the Biden administration for it. I would look to Syrians to be developing a national plan, a national vision that has support west of the Euphrates River, east of the Euphrates River, and among Syrian communities scattered across the Middle East and elsewhere. A Syrian plan and a Syrian vision. Um, that's a lot more important than anything that Mr. Biden is going to do. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry, just very quickly, but you know, uh, but Robert, you know that there's been more plans and visions, you know, from the day after project to various articulations of really beautiful principles on a democratic, even secular Syria that respects minority rights and women rights. I mean, I, I, have, I have folders of plans um, and binders of plans, uh, but the, 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 that appeal to and, and not to be, you know, I hate to speak in this terms, but that I know many Alawis and Christians and Druze and Sunnis and Arabs and Kurds said, this is great. But everyone knows that it depends on Bashar al-Assad sharing power or stepping aside. And his criminal mafia regime will never contemplate that. Even if the plan came from their own sect or village, that's not how they operate. And so to say that this requires a Syrian plan, I think is, is, is just not entirely realistic because the Syrian plan requires this current regime, which has now ruled Syria for 40, 45 years, I, I, can't, I lost count, um, agreeing to certain compromises and it's not in their DNA. It, and, and perhaps I get it. It's not for the United States or Russia or Iran to ultimately fix this. But what we're saying is are there are things that the international community can do, number one, 
and, and this is where there are disagreements on mitigating the harm that's been caused by this conflict and perhaps helping on the margins to steer it toward a better place. Uh, I, I share with you that this conflict began between Syrians, but it sure as hell not where it is today. And in fact, the Syrian component is, is a very small part of it at this point. We, um, there is this question on uh, uh, directed towards Ambassador Ford again on this topic. That's why I want to bring it up. It says, uh, it's really disappointing to hear you calling for handing over more Syrian areas to the Russians. That, if it, if it happens, means continuity of the suffering of the Syrian people, and it will make it more difficult to have a fair political solution. Uh, do you think that that leverage that's uh, built the U.S. has on the ground that could help uh, help towards a political solution? Uh, or do you suggest that uh, regardless of the political process, we should uh, drop it and leave it to the uh, other players? I think we have to be honest. Uh, this leverage that I keep hearing about Whale just referred to it, he toned it down a bit, which I appreciate, but I just don't think it's going to achieve anything in the near term. And um, the Americans have controlled the oil fields and these grain producing areas with the Kurdish uh, PYD, YPG militia. They've controlled these areas now for going on four years. And Yes, the economy in Western Syria has gone uh, seriously down. Uh, exchange rate on the Syrian lira has skyrocketed. Um, but as Whale himself just noted, hasn't moved the regime much at all. If anything, I think Dima was just talking about the Constitution Committee, be the first to say the regime is, is making no compromises. So I just don't believe that this leverage is useful in any near time frame. And if you say to me, well, let's wait 20 years, I, I guess it's kind of like John Maynard Keynes talking about economics. Or he'd say, well, in the long term, we're all dead. How long are how long do we wait? And is that really the way we make American foreign policy to like, you know, scatter troops around for 20 years at a time? I don't know. I that strikes me as as not a very sound way of doing policy. So um, I, I want to answer something Whale said, because he raises a good point about, uh, you know, what kind of Syrian plan is ever going to work? Um, as you know, Whale, yeah, there have been a lot of plans, but name one that's on the table right now that's garnering any kind of discussion. I can't. The day after plan, you know, gathering dust on a table. Um, the point is, what kind of plan is gaining support on the west side of the river? because ultimately we're going to have to pull, not we, it's not the Americans job, Syrians will have to find a consensus that includes people who support the government now. And so how that's done, I don't know. I don't pretend to be an expert on Syria, um, but what I do know is that whatever plan is ultimately chosen is going to have a large margin of buy-in from elements of the regime. The regime will not be overthrown as you yourself just said. So they're gonna have to be, people hate this word, compromises. And uh, I haven't seen a plan put forward 
that sort of goes forward with that sort of outlook. And there's another problem, and let's be honest about it. Um, if you want to get rid of the regime, you have to have someone who is considered sort of a reliable leader and spokesperson of the opposing point of view. I can't identify who that would be. Um, but just if you think about it analytically, there needs to be a visible alternative. Manaf Talas, are we serious? So uh, I, I just don't think in the end, the answer lies in Washington. I'm not sure the answer lies in Moscow. I have big doubts about that. I think in the end, Syrians have to address this problem. Stop waiting for the Americans. They're, they're not gonna do more than they do now, I don't think. Thank you, Ambassador. Dima? Yes, I have a lot to answer. And you know, I'm, I'm really surprised at a lot of the things that Ambassador Ford is saying. And you know, I do take issue with the way they're, say, they're, they're being said, um, unfortunately. Um, first of all, you know, um, for somebody who was on the ground when the peaceful demonstrations started and to describe that as a problem between Syrians, Syrians against Syrians, um, I think that's, uh, that's an insult to the Syrian people who, who took to the streets against the regime, against the oppression that they had lived uh, under for, uh, for over 40 years. Um, maybe now it has become sort of, you know, there is this... Um, Syrian Syrian conflict, but it also involves um, at least five countries, five armies, one of which is the US. When we talk about, um, you know, um, uh, Syrians are not waiting for the US to fix the Syria problem. Um, uh, Syrians are waiting for the US to do its part as one of the major international players complaining about what Russia is doing, about what Turkey is doing, but standing without doing anything itself, without using the leverage it has on the ground um, for political gains, for the benefit of Syrians, um, while the rhetoric is so rosy and beautiful, that is a disappointment. That is what disappointing Syrians. We're not asking for the US to take military action um, because you know more than half of our country is destroyed. So nobody is asking the US to, to target anybody militarily. In fact, as long as there are these military actions, we can't proceed with the political solution. But what the US hasn't done for 10 years is use its leverage, whether at the international level or elsewhere or in Syria itself, after it had taken presence, military presence on the ground, whether it's 500 troops or 10,000 troops, it doesn't matter, it's there. And it has some leverage, and it has not used that for political gains, to push politically, um, you know, towards the solution. And we don't have to have something ready and put in place. We have 2254. It has a roadmap for a political solution. And 2254 is under the auspices of the United Nations. And I do believe that the United States it's a is a member of the Security Council. So when we sit there at the Constitutional Committee and the regime is sitting across from us, it's not because Syrians don't wanna to talk to each other because there isn't, for example, you know, we see the special envoy and he doesn't have the support from the group that gave him his job to do his job fully. And that involves Russia, it involves the US, it involves China, it involves, you know, the, uh, France and the UK. So um, please don't misread or misrepresent what we're saying. We're not asking for, for, military, for, for military intervention. Um, 
And in terms of compromises, yes, we do understand this. And I think being involved in, in a political body and being engaged in political negotiations and going to the Constitutional Committee, we know that we, you know, th these, these slogans of toppling the regime and militarily um, uh, having one side victor over the other is not the solution. Otherwise, we would not be going to Geneva to still have these negotiations. And our main concern are the Syrian people. We don't need one person to, to take the place of another person. So, you know, the solution has to include all Syrians. It has to be for the benefit of all Syrians and future generations. So, of course, we do understand that there will be compromises because, and there are going to be concessions because this is what negotiations is about. We do understand that. So, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry for, for being very aggressive with this, but I think there were some uh, slightly condescending kind of messages that were being sent there by Ambassador Ford, with all due respect. Thank you. My dear, I really must respond. Okay, go ahead. Um, Dima, I respect your passion and I respect your point of view, but I have to ask you directly. You want the Americans to do more. What precisely do you want the Americans to do? Be very specific tactically. Don't tell me about using leverage. What specifically do you want the Americans to do? Do you want us to put more sanctions on Russia? Do you want us to put more sanctions on Russian military companies? Be specific. Well, I would like to ask you a question. What has the US done? No, no, no. no. I asked you yes. a question. No, no. What has the US done? What has the US done to push for the political process that it supposedly supports for the political process according to 2254, which was, um, you know, it, 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 the entire uh, Security Council uh, voted for it. What has the US done? The thing is, inactivity it obstructs the process. And I'm not, I'm, you know, you tell me what can the US do, but what has it done also? What I think, what I think guys is actually, what if I said you're both right? And, and, and there's something that there's a tendency for, look, look, all of us here, all of us here are deeply frustrated and heartbroken by the last 10 years. And one of the sad legacies of Syria it has, while the, the real perpetrators of atrocities are cooperating with each other to inflict more harm, those who really have struggled to, to do the right thing, right, in some cases end up turning against one another. I mean, again, I think the greatest travesty has been what has happened to the NATO alliance, not just US-Turkey, by the way. US, the entire NATO alliance and the European Union you know, work together and believe in a, in, a, in, a, in a consensus on how to deal with external issues. I mean, that's one of Vladimir Putin's greatest achievements. In Syria, the United States has done a lot. Okay, the United States has troops on the ground. We have suffered casualties. We have almost gone to war with Iran and Russia over Syria. We have risked our NATO alliance with Turkey. And we are the largest humanitarian provider of assistance to Syria. We spend hundreds of millions, billions of dollars we've spent. Unfortunately, we get no credit for, including from Syrians, including from the Syrian opposition. I mean, it's really frustrating. Like you hear the Syrian opposition talk about the United States, you would think they're talking about Iran. Like guys, we're, on, we're trying to help. Now, 
this is not about what do we need the United States to do more. As I've mentioned, uh, Ambassador, I actually don't think we need to do a lot more. Uh, personally, I don't. I really do. The argument now is some people are saying we need to pull out, we need to lift the sanctions, it's over, it's too late, Assad is going to win again, why are we there? I understand the sentiment, but what I'm saying is different. We don't need to do anything differently or that much differently. Whatever we have on the ground, we're, the American body politics is not going to support more troops in the Middle East. This is a fact. The American body politics is not going to support airstrikes on Syria willy-nilly. Maybe respond to Hezbollah and Iran here and there. But beyond that, it's not going to happen. And I don't think it's needed from a military perspective or even a dollar and cents perspective. What we're spent, well, the money that Trump froze, it needs to be released, in my opinion. The troops that we have on the ground, in my view, honestly, maybe a few more hundreds will do the job. And Dima, I actually think sticking around with our current posture in the Northeast and perhaps better coordination with Turkey and Idlib and continuing the humanitarian and capacity support may get us to a better place down the line, but it saves the people under the protection of the US and Turkey now. And bridges, look, we're all talking about compromise. It bridges the various must-haves for different stakeholders, including in Washington. There, is a, there are people who want nothing to do and they don't want greater commitments in the region. And there are people who don't want to cut and leave. And what we're saying is don't change what you're doing. The presence on the ground, the support we already provide, and, and when we talk about the diplomatic engagement, that's an easy one to increase, and we should increase it. There should be more high-level, serious U.S. engagement with experienced diplomats at every opportunity. That, that, well, that, well, that, well, that, well. The constitutional process, the Geneva process, I'll even say in Astana, we have to be there. We have to be there. We have to create our own processes between Turks and Kurds, between Arabs and Kurds, between the opposition and even the regime in track two. We should be involved in all of that. So I just want to make sure that sometimes in our frustrations, we come across as so far off. I really think we're, in terms of our posture as a country, we are where we need to be given the realities that I described. Well, uh, the U.S. Uh, engagement with Russia has not been in a, I would say, uh, sort of, okay, this has to end, and what do you want type of thing. It, like, it didn't enter, the U.S. didn't enter into a serious negotiation with Russia. That would be my uh, humble criticism because, but it mattered in Idlib, we saw when Trump said you know don't do it it did matter the u.s russia has played this game often you know uh with with turkey especially right empty out zones and then mm. have assad bombard take over gradually etc uh do you u.s push back on that has been weak i would say and turkey entered astana process not necessarily you know happily but it was because those guys were on the ground so i feel like despite the presence uh u.s presence on the ground uh we basically focused on uh isis 
and the larger serious story is a bit forgotten. And I want to ask you a question yeah. that is from the audience. The new administration might want to ignore Syria policy, but Syria has a way of creating crises that require policy responses. What, if any, crises could you see in the coming year if the admin A appoints no senior representatives, B dawdles on policy review, C shows no energy on the file in general, or yeah. does it settle into status? Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll come back to answer the question I never answered when you began by asking me about the humanitarian situation. Yeah. Look, I think uh, a, a, and, 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 and I know that the current acting is an experienced and respected U.S. diplomat. What you need for these roles, and perhaps Amy can do that, uh, or maybe someone else is needed to, uh, to work with her, uh, because it's really, as Robert knows, it's actually two jobs. The Syria job is two jobs and they pay you one salary, which is internally, you have to manage the United States government's response. You need to be an internal bureaucratic operator. That's a full-time job and it's very difficult. And sometimes it's more difficult than the external job. So you need to steer the interagency, the political, the economic, the humanitarian, the security in support of objectives and you also have to be the face of the policy diplomatically. You have to meet with the UN, with the allies, sometimes with adversaries. Robert Ford did an incredible job that really somebody should write a book about, which is how he worked with the group called the London 11. The relationship, the relationship that Ambassador Ford created and the consensus he helped steered in support of the Syria policy, particularly between Countries that did not always get along. I saw, I, and people matter. I saw the United States take a leadership role back then to make sure that Turkey, the UK, the French, the Italians, the Germans, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Jordanians, and the Egyptians. Can you imagine? All of them agreeing to play nice with each other. It wasn't perfect. And some were doing their own little things on the side. But it was pretty damn good to see this diplomatic coordination and personal trust developing over time, especially between us, Turkey, the UK, and France, by the way. The, amb the ambassadorial level and the envoy level. Okay, your ambassador, Omer, Wilkins, uh, uh, Chevalier, Robert Ford, and others. Whatever good happened at that period, it was because of that incredible diplomatic management of this portfolio. You need this envoy, whether it's Amy or whoever comes next, to be able to do that, to replicate it. You need a Richard Holbrook, right, kind of type of diplomat to manage somebody like, I mean, can you imagine dealing with Lavrov and the Russians and then perhaps the Iranians and the UN, God bless their soul, they, they just can't get shit done. And then you have to get the Syrians, right, and the interagency. It's very needed, and I fear that, for example, you have now a new test coming up. In July, the United Nations Security Council resolution that authorizes cross-border access into Syria. By the way, I don't think that resolution was ever needed. You already have access provided by previous resolutions that the UN refuses to use, but that's neither here nor there. The Russians are not going to renew this mandate. What are we going to do as an international community? It's not just the United States' responsibility. 
but we have a part of the responsibility. Most of our money is crossing that border. So who is going to take that leadership role in the interagency to think of what to do to get the legal authorization, right? If you, especially if you're thinking of working outside of the UN uh, parameters and get the partners and the allies and leverage that with the Russians to convince them that, hey guys, if you're gonna authorize this, we're gonna bypass you anyway, credibly. So that's, a, that's an immediate test of this coming up and we need some serious US engagement. Constitutional committee, who's gonna go, maybe, again, maybe it's not for us to do it, but who in the world is gonna go and tell the Russians that, hey guys, your allies are not gonna, uh, they're not playing ball in this process. Uh, we're gonna do something else. We're gonna create a new process without them that's gonna bypass them. You know what? We're gonna invest in uh, the Syrian opposition and the SDF and Turkey, hear me out, figuring out things on their own. I mean, look, you have to play this game as well. And so all of this is absent from the current di diplomatic scene, but it's my hope, it's my hope that the Biden administration with all the great talent that's in government now, there's incredible talent, uh, will we'll, we'll ramp up the diplomatic piece. And quite frankly, that's usually the least politically costly to do. Everybody loves diplomacy. So I hope we put a lot of power in there. Thank you, Val. Uh, I wanna uh, just go through the questions and then if people have responses, they can go ahead and mention them. There's one question about, is there a Biden policy regarding Hezbollah and its role in Syria and internationally? Anyone volunteer to respond to that? Ambassador Ford. Look, there's a consensus in the United States, politically, mm -hmm. uh, that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, that it's unhelpful to stability in the Middle East, whether that be in Lebanon, uh, whether that be between Lebanon and Israel, or the role of Hezbollah in places such as uh, Iraq and uh, Syria. There's nobody in the United States that thinks Hezbollah is a good thing. There's nobody. Um, there's maybe a little bit less consensus about the utility of American military strikes against Hezbollah. That's a different question. So um, again, it gets into the, what do you do about it short of military strikes? And the United States has tried to sanction its favorite tool in Washington, sanctions, uh, to get at Hezbollah. And I think there's, again, broad political support, Republicans and Democrats, uh, to pursue that kind of policy. Do you think, uh, Ambassador Ford, one question is about Obama, what he did with Iran to be able to get the Iran deal, they sacrificed Syrian, Syria, I'm just paraphrasing. Do you see a, do you see a repeat of that, or do you find that criticism justified at all? So, I, I, a lot has been made of Jay Solomon's remark in his book about um, the Obama administration wasn't to, willing to take military action in Syria because of its negotiations uh, about the Iran nuclear deal. I have to tell you my own perspective, having sat in meetings at the White House and having talked to Obama personally about it. Uh, is that uh, the president was as much concerned about getting into a, a military adventure where he couldn't see how it would end and how he would control escalation. 
Uh, he was very concerned that if the Americans launched a strike and Assad escalated on his side, then the Americans would have to escalate to counter Assad's escalation and you would go up a ladder and it would not be Barack Obama in charge of that ladder. It would be Bashar al-Assad. So I'd, I'd be honest about that up front. Um, I personally doubt that the Biden administration wants to get deeply involved in a military confrontation in Syria. I think priorities of the Biden administration are domestic, economics, pandemic, uh, social justice issues here in the United States, climate change. Um, and to the extent that there's a foreign policy priority, it certainly is not in the Middle East. So I, I, whatever military actions they take, I think they're gonna be designed to be very short, very brief, and hopefully not provoke escalation from the other side. I'm, I'm very okay, sorry, Pierre, I have a hard, hard yeah, stop Pierre. at 12.30, I apologize. Uh, and I'm jumping yet okay, to well, another Zoom. We'll let you go, we, we are ending uh, in a minute. Dima, I wanna give you the last word. Thank you, Well. Thank you guys, thank you, Dima. Thank you, Ambassador. Yeah, I just wanted while to hear this before he leaves that I, you know, I, I second a lot of the things that he said. I agree with a lot of things he said. I definitely, you know, none of the things I, I was talking about, obviously, we're not ignoring all the assistance that the U.S. has given, um, whether on the humanitarian level or to the opposition. I just don't think it had been sufficient or there's a change because 10 years later, we need a change. Um, we need a clear policy. The one point I will disagree with you on is when you talk about better coordination, um, this is a point that I think Qadir had made is that, mm. you know, Russia needs to be part of that coordination. You mm. can't ignore it. You can't, you know, hide behind your finger. It's, you know, it's a major um, and it's a country that you can actually work with on a diplomatic and political level. You know, if with Iran, maybe that's a little iffy. I think with Russia, it's very important. Um, and right now, what is required of the Biden administration is a clear policy on Syria, so we know how to proceed. I would love okay, to so see, you know what, I, I'm sorry, actually, you, you piqued my interest. I would love to see a Syrian proposal, actually, on what working with Russia on Syria looks like. Here's why, because you often see those proposals come from non-Syrians, mm. and they come across as kind of selling out the Syrian people, given what Russia has done to the Syrian people. But it will be very interesting to see a clear-eyed, pragmatic proposal coming from even the Syrian opposition or pro-democracy Syrians to say, you know what, here is what diplomacy with Russia should look like. I know that I would read that myself because um, th there's just not a lot of it out there. I would love to see it. I can't no. make you any promises. Sorry, Khadir. I can't make any promises okay. about this, but we can talk about what we need to see happening at the international level. And I think countries can also figure out what they can do amongst each other. I can't go and say to the US, this is what you need to do with Russia, but I can go and say- Everybody's pontificating, you should do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> All right, uh, I'll think of that. Right. I wanna uh, finish with a comment by the audience. This is one of the best debates ever on Syria. Hats off and thanks a lot for this. We need to make other webinars as lively as this one. So Ambassador Ford, Dima, and while I, I want to thank all of you. Uh, we'll end this conversation here. Thank you so much. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.